0: So, this evening, I want to talk about, primarily about equanimity, and how that quality and practice enables us to meet all of these different conditions. Some of the conditions that were mentioned were very positive, some more difficult. So... In my experience, and I'm sure it's yours too, every day we're tested that life throws up something in in our face, in our body, in our heart, in our experience, more than every day. As you can see in meditation, every minute, every few minutes, every hour, there's something that maybe is challenging or difficult or asking us to grow in our capacity in some way. Making it not so easy to be here. You know, the Buddha's definition of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, of difficult to bear. There are many, many things in our lives that are not so easy to be with. And so, this practice, this quality of equanimity, is a tremendous refuge, support. I know many of you mentioned. Even just practicing outside has its challenges. It's uncomfortable, harder to concentrate sometimes, bugs and discomfort and unfamiliar. And it requires uh, digging deeper in our resources to stay steady with, with all of that. And I've done a lot of nature retreats where the conditions were not quite as favorable as they are here. Uh, and It's partly why I love them, because I never know what's going to happen, you know. I do these retreats, I did anyway a while ago, these kayaking retreats up in Alaska. And, um you know, it rains every day, sometimes all day, <laughs> every day. You know, and you're prepared for that. You have your, you know, waterproofs and all of that. Um but sometimes you're kayaking, and uh, there's a lot of humpback whales uh, feeding. They come back from their migration to Alaska, and they're very, very hungry. And they don't care so much about whether kayaks in the way of their feeding, especially when they're surge feeding, and they, they, their mouths are, you know, the six-foot gaping wide mouth comes up t- you know, to feed on krill and herring. And... And I remember we were kayaking, and this this humpback well, i mean—was maybe this close to taking out the back of the kayak behind me. So it's a great place to practice equanimity <laughs> with the unknown. We never know what's going to arise, do we? So in this life, as the Buddha mentioned, it's full of ups and downs. It's full of changing conditions talked about as the eight vicissitudes the eight changing winds that blow through our world blow through our life blow through our body of course there are many more than eight but he uh, named eight see if you can recognize these happening today or the last hour pleasure and pain gain and loss praise and blame and fame and disrepute, or renown, and being disparaged. So the first four are particularly common. In every moment, there's perhaps a leaning towards or away from pleasure and pain. Certainly not of gain and loss. And so that's the nature of this life: being in a human body on the on planet Earth. And so it asks us to find a way to meet that with some steadiness. Not so easy when we lose everything that we know or we love, a loved one. Or we deal with chronic pain. Or in my talk in my case, you give a Dharma talk and half the people love it and half the people hate it. <laughs> Or the cooks. So if I used to cook here, same thing. Some people would love it, some people would hate it. So where do we stand in that? Where do we find our ground? This is a poem from Anna Akhmatova. She says, Everything is plundered, betrayed, and sold. Death's great black wing scrapes the air. Misery gnaws to the bone. Why then do we not despair? By day from the surrounding woods, cherries blow summer into town. At night, the deep transparent skies glitter with new galaxies. And the miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses. The miraculous comes so close to the ruined, dirty houses. So I think that's a great example of the, the range in this world. Death's great black wing scrapes the air misery knows to the bone and yet the wind summer blows cherries into town blows blossoms or fragrance of ponderosa pine or uh, the hummingbirds waft joy into the room yeah so this changing world that we live in and so mindfulness obviously as you can hopefully see is one of the great supports the great pillars <coughs> For equanimity, especially in meditation, because we sit and we walk, but particularly in the sitting, we sit and we we see the whole show of our lives, of our feelings and thoughts, the range of our experience—pleasure, pain, gain, loss—and we sit steady. Especially if someone else is ringing the bell, you stay even steadier. <laughs> Maybe at home you leap up and you know. Go make yourself a cup of coffee, but here you kind of hang out in the in the in the middle of it all, and often not so easy. But you stay, and that staying, that coming back again and again to your experience, to the breath, to kindness, to receiving, to allowing, you know, builds a kind of steadiness, to builds a capacity, and that capacity is what translates into how we meet the conditions of our lives which are usually much more uh, much more upheaval to them in our relationships and our work, dealing with money and uh, security and children and parents and all that. This is from Suzuki Roshi. He said, "You don't really know what it means to sit in meditation t- until there is some great difficulty in your life not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love and then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do and finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all and that's the moment that you begin to understand the power of your practice does that sound familiar? you sit you take your seat in the midst of your fears and sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit there in the middle of it all. You know, it sometimes is nothing we can do, as he says. Except open to the truth of it. Be with it, allow it. Sometimes of course there is place to act, to move, to to help, but sometimes there isn't. So equanimity is, uh, there's many different ways to look at equanimity. One way I think about it is it's an unwavering steadiness. It's the steadiness, just as Suzuki was pointing to, of staying steady no matter how difficult or disturbing the things that are coming towards us. And I like to think that our practice outdoors is really a support for that. Because you know? there's a lot of things come and go, Um, distractions and discomforts and this is an example of a friend of mine um, this is from my book uh, who was doing a standing meditation in the south of France on a retreat and uh, she was developing some equanimity as you will see. While doing a standing meditation with my eyes closed in the forest I noticed a tickle on my face It traveled repeatedly from my mouth to my right eye and back again over a period of about 10 minutes. Trying to practice non-reactivity, I breathed patiently, sensing many light legs busily walking back and forth. After some time, a new strange sensation appeared on my mouth like it was being covered. Curiosity got the better of me and I opened my eyes. A small spider had woven a delicate web over my mouth and secured its gossamer thread on an eyelash. I felt an exquisite intimacy with this being. I felt touched at being considered a part of nature, suitable to make a home on. And yet, at the same time, I knew I would shatter its home and our intimacy when I opened my mouth. What intimacy, delicacy, and destruction. The touch of grace as delicate as a spider's thread." So I don't know how many of you have had spider webs woven on you this this week. Um certain lot of flies and maybe some ants. I know someone was talking about being bitten by an ant and so many opportunities to, uh, stay steady. Yeah. And, 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 and what I love about that story is what gets revealed in the steadiness or what, what, what what's allowed. In that case, a very beautiful connection with this very delicate creature. I was recently. I uh, teach at Spirit Rock, and I uh, one of the evening classes. I we had a guest uh, Tibetan teacher monk called Lama Paldin Gyatsö, who had just uh, not just he was released maybe about 15 years ago, but he was um, inter uh, jailed uh, and by the Chinese in 1959 during the invasion and was uh, jailed for 33 years for his religious beliefs. And tremendous brutality and uh, torture and violence and persecution that he went through and witnessed. And it's always amazing when I meet these people who've gone through these kind of intense, unbearable uh, life circumstances and who come out the other side with a buoyancy, with a resiliency, with a, in this case, compassion... And strength, and non-reactivity, non-hatred, which he, he puts down to the power of his practice of meditation, compassion, uh, understanding the law of karma, and um, you know. Then there's many, many examples of this of people who develop this quality not not necessarily out of choice but out of circumstances, and it just speaks to the power and the depth of human nature to to tolerate incredible conditions. So another facet of equanimity is is an unconditional acceptance of the way things are. Which doesn't mean a passivity, it doesn't mean we don't respond, but it means we initially meet the conditions as they are. Usually we're so quick, as we mentioned, to jump in, to react, to change, to fix, to control... It's also a quality of balance, of patience. When we have a steadiness of heart and mind, we have more resiliency for facility to stay in, stay steady with something with a patient quality. And as you see, it's really necessary when we're with ourselves in an intimate way like we are in meditation. It requires a lot of patience. Just to have patience with our crazy mind. 65,000 thoughts a day, apparently, we think. 90, 95% we thought <laughs> yesterday. That requires a lot of patience. <laughs> we have to deal with it every day, <laughs> let alone all the other things we have to deal with. This is a story about patience. It's a great metaphor for practice. A man observed a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in her basket, in her you know, shopping cart, As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookies expectantly, and her mother told her no. The little girl immediately began to whine and fuss, and the mother said quietly, Now, Monica, we have only half the aisles left to go. Don't be upset. It won't be long. Soon they came to the candy aisle, and again the little girl began to shout for candy. And when told she couldn't have any, she began to cry. The mother said, There, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. When they got to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother patiently said, Monica, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes, and then you can go home and take a nice nap. The man followed them out to the parking lot and stopped the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother said, What do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so in the midst of life where we need it most we need a lot of patience. So patience is a great support for equanimity. So of course the opposite of equanimity is what we're more familiar with, right? Reacting, resisting, striking out against, losing losing our balance, losing our calm, trying to control, trying to manipulate things. We don't have to look at TV or politics or in the world around us. There's not a lot of equanimity in this world, and the world is suffering as a consequence of it. The near enemy of equanimity um, in Buddhist psychology is indifference, and numbness, or what's called a spiritual bypass, where we're trying to be equanimous or look equanimous, but we're really just. Ignoring the, the the mess of pain or difficulty. I mean, just, yeah, you know, it's the Pollyanna things are fine, I'm good, how are you? You know, we try to spiritualize uh, our difficulty but as a way to avoid actually being with it and facing it. And as Grove mentioned last night, this phrase from Dogen. Um, He's really speaking about uh, awakening as an intimacy with all things. And so our practice isn't one, even though we talk a lot about observing and watching and noticing, uh, which can sound detached, it's actually, as you can see, mindfulness is actually very intimate with our experience. We, we actually go close. We, we rub our experience. We want to know directly what's happening in our body, in our heart, in our mind not aloof and detached. This quality of equanimity also gives us a tremendous courage because we have that steadiness, so there's a kind of ability to stay steady with difficulty. There's a really great story, Uh, some of you I'm sure know, uh, from the Zen tradition of uh, during a time of war in Japan and uh, there's approaching uh, enemy army that's basically plundering and burning and destroying and killing as they move through this land and they come up to the grounds of a monastery and all the monks have fled uh, except for the the Zen master who's sitting uh, in his throne in the zendo and the uh, general of the army who's notoriously uh, uh, violent and brutal uh, hears about it and uh, finds the the fact that this monk would stay behind very audacious, and so he storms into the zendo uh, and paces up to the the zen master and says, "Do you know I could cut off your horde? I could cut off your head with a single swipe of my sword without blinking." And the zen master says, "Do you know that you could do that, and I wouldn't blink?" <laughs> so he's standing there steady. Beyond conditions. So I don't expect anybody to come through here with a test of, you know, that's the, you know, the final day test. We'll bring the sword in. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if you blink. <laughs> Although there's a beautiful story, I just reminded of uh, uh, this monk Achen Suchito, who's um, a great teacher uh, in the Achen Chah tradition, who, uh, when he was in, in, in Tudong in pilgrimage around India, uh, in Bihar, near Bodh which is uh, notorious for its bandits, um, uh, it's pretty lawless. Like ironic, Bodh Gaya, the place the Buddha got enlightened, is the most lawless, crime-ridden uh, state in the country of India. And um, he was—they were attacked by bandits. Uh, he and his assistant, and his assistant uh, ran into the woods out of fear. And uh, Achan Suchito just you know, sat and. Uh, they they stripped him and took all his belongings. And a man got a hatchet, and a Suchita just pointed to his neck, just gave his neck, and said, "Okay." And um, I think the the uh, the bandits saw that this man was a really deep spiritual practitioner, and let him go. So that's the profound serenity. Equanimity that's possible. A friend of mine was teaching in Australia once and uh, in in, in the outback, not in the outback, but in a hot place somewhere, I think, in, not exactly sure where, in the the jungle. And um, uh, there was one man who'd been particularly struggling with uh, holding on and, and not wanting to let go of certain things in his life. And as reality has a way of (laughs) making us work with our stuff. They're sitting in meditation, and this particular meditation all had a a tin roof, so it got very hot in the the daytime. And a lot of snakes in this particular um, uh, monastery. And uh, sometimes what happens is the snakes hide up in the rafters, but when the roof gets hot, then they just drop onto the floor. So in the middle of this meditation, this particular meditator who... Is having trouble letting go, (laughs) he's sitting, and this snake lands on his lap and coils up, and is just doing this. (laughs) And so my friend Christopher, he hears this, (laughs) 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 and he leans over to his co-teacher who owns the, the monastery. And uh, asks, and, and, and the, the, the yogi is shouts out, is this poisonous, you know, the snake's doing this, when you, which would usually be a sign it's a poisonous snake. So Christopher leans over and says, is it, is it poisonous? And uh, the, the, co- the owner said, not too much. <laughs> 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 Whispered. <laughs> and so the yogi had to just sit there, you know, really still, so not to be a threat because most most living beings on this planet, they're usually scared of humans, only attack if we're a threat, including snakes. And once it realized it wasn't a threat, it slid down, slid through the other yogis who also had to practice some equanimity, (laughs) and out into the forest. So you never know when uh, when conditions are going to require some equanimity practice. Since I'm in storytelling mode, I'll tell one more story and then I'll move on with my talk. So the same, uh, my same friend was in a monastery in Thailand and uh, when he was a monk and there was a lot of dogs, as there, are, as there are in monasteries in Thailand and Southeast Asia, and there was a particular racket because these dogs were chasing a snake through the courtyard, a lot of snakes in Thailand. And there's a monk sitting at the edge of the courtyard, meditation under a tree. And the dogs are sort of chasing this snake towards this monk. And of course the snake has nowhere to go to hide from the monk, so the snake goes up underneath the monk's robes. <laughs> and I've been told that monks don't wear undergarments. Underpants. <laughs> so, and again the snake, the, the, the monk has to sit there in complete stillness. And apparently it's running for hours. The dogs are barking and yapping and eventually they left and got bored and at some point the snake slowly slithered out. <laughs> so we have a few snakes here on the ground, but uh, as you may have seen if you've been fortunate to see some grass snakes and garden snakes. So one important facet of equanimity is because it brings this steadiness, it allows us to move more deeply into our experience, particularly when it's difficult and challenging. And you may notice this working with physical pain, working with emotional pain, that if there's no equanimity, it's really it's almost impossible to stay with a difficult experience. But if there's some steadiness, some balance, some not resisting the way things are then then uh, with our mindfulness we can actually probe a little deeper we can stay we can hang out on the edge on the cusp of our tolerance and get to know what it's like to be in the middle of intense physical pain or emotional pain and not feel completely swayed and swamped And then we all have our nemesis with equanimity. We all have our places where we can have some, some balance. And then we all have our places that are challenging. So what, what, what places are you challenged by in terms of your equanimity? Anybody dare to shout out? The subway. The subway. The New York subway? Yeah. Yeah, like the London Underground for me when I lived in London. For me, it's seeing people harm children, being abusive to children, verbally or otherwise. Very hard to stay steady without feeling tremendous pain and reactivity. The same with the animals. Same with animals, right? The cruelty to animals. Often hard to bear. Yeah. What else? What are your nemesis? For a friend of mine, it's inf- infidelity. Knowing or hearing about someone's infidel- infidelity to their partner. Which is very, very hard for him to bear. My son. Your son, right. Almost anything about her. Yeah, yeah. So our families, our nearest and dearest are often, you know, people with our last name. You know, our children, our parents. Often it's it's, you know triggering. They push our buttons. Why? Because they put them there in the first place, usually. And to feel what it's like when we don't have acronymity, it's actually very painful to feel that intolerance or that reactivity or resistance, particularly if it's people that we love. Airport security. Airport security. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or ecological destruction, you know. Hearing the loss of species. You know. All the nuclear fallout from Fukushima. Many, many things that are hard to bear. You know. And so that's why we practice to, to find some, some, some ease with that in the midst of these very difficult things. This is a poem from a friend and neighbor of mine, Jennifer Wellwood. And um, she's speaking in a way to equanimity. She says, Willing to experience aloneness Oh, the fruits of what happens when we can stay steady with our experience. Willing to experience aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fear, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my loss, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Each condition I welcome transforms me and becomes itself transformed. To play it is purest delight. To honor its form, true devotion. So I think this line is particularly poignant. Each condition I flee from pursues me. Similar to a line from Achan Cha who says, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. So, and a lack of equanimity makes us flee. But we can never flee very far, because we, guess what, we follow ourselves. <laughs> our mind and our habits and our personality follows us. And we go to Hawaii, and guess what? My mind shows up, hi! <laughs> I'm here! Remember that fantasy, that unsent email, that disaster that you're trying to forget about? So practice is always an invitation to turn into, to meet, to look at, to go into, to delve, to dive. Each condition I welcome transforms me. A beautiful way of describing it. So there is a meditation practice. So I should give a slightly bigger context. Um... The, uh, the, the practice of equanimity is also taught within the, the schema of the four Brahma Viharas. These are four heart qualities. Four qualities that we can develop that are the, really the true nature and the essence of the heart that, uh, when we, through our practice, uh, uh become less reactive and less caught, less self-centered, less caught up in our own press release and our own desires and wants. There's a certain space for other qualities to arise. You know, sometimes people say, I'm, I fear if I do all this mindfulness practice and sacramony practice, I'll become sort of a, a meditation automaton or something, you know, kind of neutral and bland. And But actually what happens is it allows more wholesome, beautiful qualities to emerge. So, and with equanimity, so so these qualities, they're love, compassion, appreciative joy and equanimity. And I, I only have time to touch on them this evening. But one of the things that we can see is how they're intertwined. So as we become more equanimous and we can stay steady with our difficulty, it allows us to move into it when we can move and meet our difficulty. It allows, it can allow the heart to open. If our heart is open, there can be a response of compassion tenderness and heaven knows that we need that quality because as you can see when we sit and we face ourselves there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's not so easy loneliness fear antagonism guilt shame loss and you know, i've heard all these things in this last few days from people you know and then there's this, this, this the global suffering you know? So equanimity allows us to stay steady to move into these difficult places. So I was sitting outside last night, um, and um, you know, just enjoying the the evening light, and then a bird comes, beautiful, flying down, hits the glass, breaks a neck, and dies. You know, that's. That's life, beauty, preciousness, death. You know. And I just it was interesting, you know feeling in you know, feeling just feeling the thud in my heart when it thudded the window, You know picking it up and feeling its warmth and just seeing because sometimes I don't die, they just get shocked, but it clearly broke in the neck and I put it in the, in the, in the bushes and the grasses and and just to stay steady and open to that and to, to not recoil from the pain of that. I was on a long retreat some years ago um, I was in the middle of a, some many years of long retreats in the 90s and um, uh, as as can happen in the middle of a retreat, we can you know some old wounds and certain so, pains and traumas can surface completely out of the blue in which case in my case it was and completely knocked me for six couldn't practice, couldn't really feel like I'd meditate, couldn't do the walking practice, didn't really want to be on retreat, but I didn't have anywhere to go because I was homeless and I was on this three-month retreat, so I stayed on the retreat. And I had to hang out just with that pain and that sorrow, that the, the trauma that was arising. And what was interesting was, because I'd been practicing for, I mean, about a dozen years before then... Uh, Rather than resist it and kick and scream, there was a kind of a surrender that happened. And I wasn't trying to surrender. I wasn't trying to let go. I was happily being anywhere else but there. But there was a kind of a yielding to it. And a softening and a compassion. And like a tender awareness arose for the few months, for the months that that passed after that. Very difficult, very painful. But it was really a, a testament to me to see the power of the practice the fruit of our practice, just like Suzuki Roshi talks about in the hospital, we never know when the fruit of our practice, of our efforts, of our patience, of our kindness comes to bear, fruit. So, so you know, we talk a lot about the twinning of the, of the qualities of kindness and uh, mindfulness. There's a lovely line from the sixth Zen patriarch from China who said, do not say kindness and awareness are different. Kindness is the foundation. Awareness is the foundation of kindness. Kindness is the expression of awareness. It's a beautiful summary of the, of the, you know, the, these two wings of a bird. We talk about the, the cultivation of awareness and wisdom, the cultivation of compassion and love. And we need both. We need both to respond, to be with ourselves. If you notice when you're with yourself with compassion or with kindness, there's a, soften, there's a softening in it. Yeah? There's an, it brings a certain ease. If some stuff comes up and we're just harsh and we're judgmental and we're cruel to ourselves, which we can be, it's very hard to stay with that. But if there's a warmth, if there's a, you know, some deep emotional pain comes up or some, some, some physical injury resurfaces, if there's, a, if there's a sensing into the suffering of that, you know, if we sense the suffering, it can allow the compassionate heart to arise then there's a certain ease where there's a softening in the, in the attention. And you may think, well, I'm not a kind person, I'm not a compassionate person. But we all have these qualities, you know. We all have these innately within us, just as we have innately within us, mindfulness and awareness. You know, if you, if you pay attention to your life, you'll see there's ordinary acts of kindness and care and compassion you know if someone's crying in the hall the heart responds usually if the heart's open it will feel tenderness it will feel a tug a quiverings a buddha, the buddha called it so back to the great dharma teacher uh, Gary Larson I can find it <laughs> So we're in hell. <laughs> Satan's, you know, stoking his fiery fires. And he's shouting, Mom, no! Despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the accursed. <laughs> there she is with a little, you know, little devil's apron and a tail and the horns and a tray of cookies and milk to the fresh recruits to hell. You know. So sometimes we surprise ourselves with, with this, you know, the spontaneous responsiveness of our hearts to kindness and compassion. If someone falls over, we, 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 we're there to help. That's the, that's the movement of the heart. The heart wants every, every life to be well, wants life to be happy, wants ourselves to be well, wants others to be well. The Dalai Lama said, if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. But if you want yourself to be happy, practice compassion. So there's a quality of equanimity, there's a quality of of how equanimity supports compassion. And the basis of compassion is this quality of metta, loving kindness. Beautiful quality of the heart. And really the more I practice, the more I see it's really one of the essential qualities of of the path. And really, the, really, the the expression of the path, the, the fruit of all of our practice, is how we move in this world with love and compassion and wisdom. You know, if the practice doesn't manifest in that way, we need to look at what's happening in our practice. It's one-sided. If it's a one wing of a bird, developing a lot of wisdom and awareness. If it's not balanced with compassion and love, it's imbalanced. And again mindfulness all these quality what I love about this teaching is all the qualities interweave so our mindfulness practice becoming more aware also also supports the heart opening. right If you're just walking around this beautiful land when you walk around with presence, right, how many things have you fallen in love with? Yeah the daisies and the hummingbirds and the throat the color of the hummingbird's throat and the horses today. And the trees, the smell of the pine—you know—I mean, count the long list of things. You fall in love because you're you're attentive, you're awake, you're present, and then the heart responds. Yeah. If we're numb and closed down, or just lost in a you know tumble dryer mind, we don't even notice the ranch. <laughs> we're back home, you know, repainting the bathroom, or whatever the, the chosen <laughs> fixation of the day is, you know. So so to see that relationship, how how awareness brings forth this tenderness, this love, this affection. Our awareness becomes affectionate with each other, with ourselves. And we also practice it because we also have our blocks, our resistances. Usually the hardest place to practice that is with ourselves. Even though... Every tradition i know says it starts with ourselves including the buddhist tradition the buddha said i looked around the world and i saw no one no one uh, uh, more deserving more worthy of my love than myself and that's true for each one of us none of us is more worthy than ourselves to bestow our kindness right? but not so easy and so to look at to look at the obstacles, you know. Practice, as Grove said yesterday, it's a purification practice, and we get to see what gets in the way of our natural being. Our true nature is awake, is loving, is compassionate, and when we're not in that, it's because we're caught in some conditioning that we want to get to know and be curious about. And again, this, is, this quality of matter is innate within us. Hang around a six-week infant and we'll feel the presence of love. And you'll feel the whole room feel the presence of love. And then through conditioning and, and traumas and all kinds of things, that gets protected and shut down and we have to sort of do the work of uncovering it as we as we get older. This is a story of a, of a contest that... Um, Uh, a lecturer was asked to judge about uh, finding the most caring child, which I think is a really bizarre idea, but anyhow, came up with a good story. The winner was a four-year-old child whose next-door neighbor was an elderly gentleman who had recently lost his wife. Upon seeing the man cry, the little boy went into the old gentleman's yard, climbed onto his lap, and just sat there. When his mother later asked him what he'd said to the neighbor, the little boy said, No, nothing. I just helped him cry. So, sometimes it's, 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 it's natural. We know what to do. It's spontaneous. The children show us that. So, all these things we can practice. You know, these, these Brahma-Viharas are qualities. They're also practices. The meta practice of loving-kindness, we're doing a little at the evening, just wishing, uh, using intentional phrases of uh, well-wishing, may I be well, may you be happy, may we be safe, may we be free from suffering. We climb the mind to loving kindness by seeing the goodness in people, seeing the goodness in ourselves. It's one of the proximate causes for loving kindness is to see the goodness. And mostly we're pretty critical of each other. Have you noticed? <laughs> we judge each other's clothes and the way someone walks and the way they meditate and You know what they do for a living, and on and on and on. What would it be to see the goodness in people? To look for the good quality. I have some friends who, for whatever reason, naturally do that quite spontaneously, and they have a lot of joy and they see a lot of the beauty in people because that's what that's what they're looking for, that's what they're seeing. But we can also practice that. We can we can shift. You know what's beautiful about the Buddhist teachings? It's saying, you know, because of the, the because of condition because because we're conditioned, we have the chance to change those conditions. We can practice and change the, 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 the destiny of our conditioning. So, so we have the practice of metta, of loving kindness, of saying these phrases, of seeing the goodness. The phrases of compassion, uh, which are similar intentional phrases, are just the, the well-wishing for someone to be free of suffering. May you be free of suffering. May you hold your suffering with ease. And these practices are generous practices. When, when we move through the world with kindness, with compassion, right, it's a generosity of heart. It's a gesture of generosity. Here's an example of that. Again, something, you know, these, pra- these practices can. These, these, these words can seem very lofty and remote, but they're very simple, very ordinary. This is a poem from Naomi Shihab Nye, Palestinian poet called Red Brocade. She says, The Arabs used to say, When a stranger comes to the door, feed them for three days before asking who they are, where they've come from, or where they're headed. That way they'll have enough strength to, na- to answer. Or by then you'll be such good friends you don't even care. Let's go back to that. Rice? Pine nuts? Here, take the red brocade pillow. My child will serve water to your horse. No, I was not busy when you came. I was not preparing to be busy. That's the armor everyone puts on to pretend they had a purpose in the world. I refuse to be claimed. Your plate is waiting. We will snip fresh mint into your tea. So the practices of love, compassion. The last Brahma Vihara, I'll just touch on briefly the, the, the quality of appreciative joy. And I'm sensing that a lot of you uh, are sensing into that uh, the capacity to appreciate the joy and happiness of others and the joy and the beauty in the world. And I think nature is one thing that really opens up the, the, the shutters of the heart to be touched you know, to feel that sense of appreciation and joy, um, and to allow that to sing. You know? So the Buddha said this is the rarest of these four qualities, because especially around other people, we so easily get caught in envy and jealousy and comparing, and we might see somebody, we might see somebody skipping here through the daisies, all you know, delighting and happy and smiling. And then instead of going, oh great, may they be completely fulfilled in the daisies, we go, oh, there's a little contraction, like, oh, they're just a bit too happy. (laughs) It's just, it's just a little less for me. If if they're really that happy, I don't know. There's a small pool of happiness, and they're taking a rather large slice of it, and (laughs) I'm not so crazy about that. (laughs) So we, you know, we we shut down, we contract, we we compare. Oh, I should be happier. Why they so happy? They just Miss Pollyanna and. And we have a whole story around it, um, so the Dalai Lama has this great line. He says, "Practicing appreciative joy, we increase our chances of happiness six billion to one." <laughs> so, um, again, as you know, we 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 see where we are. We see maybe there's a contraction, and then we see if we can turn. Oh, maybe you know, and, and the phrase of, of appreciative joy is a um, mudita is. Um, uh, I delight in your happiness. May your happiness and success continue to grow. Yeah. So when your best when you get home and your best friend says, "Hey, I've got this amazing new job, I got, I'm getting paid twice as much as I was before, and I'm moving to Maui, and I just found my soulmate," and and you're going. Mm. <laughs> mm. May your happiness and success continue to grow. (laughs) So I think that's all I have to say. I could go on a lot more about these qualities, but I don't want to over flood you with information or things. Um, But to you know, partly we 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 speak to these things, these qualities, uh, to bring them into awareness, to bring them into your into your radar, as it were because you know, when, we, you know, as the Buddha said, when we incline our mind towards something, whatever we frequently incline and ponder about, that the mind and heart becomes. So as we turn our, our attention to compassion or to appreciative joy or to kindness, loving kindness, or to equanimity, we may see that there's actually a lot more of those qualities already within us. You know? And also, turning our attention to them allows them to, we would like fanning the embers of those qualities. And then to also notice what gets in the way, what, what, what closes the heart down. And not to judge, not to belittle ourselves, but to see, oh, I have some work to do. What a surprise. <laughs> Let's look at this. Let's feel into this. Let's see what. why the heart isn't naturally loving. Okay, so let's sit quietly for a few minutes. this is from Wendell Berry to go into the dark with the light is to know the light to know the dark go dark go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is travelled by dark feet and dark wings Thank you for your attention. And as Grove said, thank you for your practice. Beautiful to see you so dropped in in the stillness and the silence and the nature. And so this evening um, we are blessed with a full moon, as if there wasn't enough glory and bounty. We also have the full moon. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit slash donate.